Hey, Jay, what are you up to? Getting ready for episode 219, Miles. Wait, I thought... I mean, it's New York Comic Con. I, I told you weeks ago that I'm not going to be able to record this weekend. Oh, we're not recording with you. I lined up some guests. I've got yeah, a couple current X-Line writers. I've got a cosplayer. So you're going to talk about current titles. That sounds good. I mean, I guess we might touch on a few of them. Wait, then what are you going to talk about? Well, we were thinking it would probably be best to keep the focus pretty tight. Seems sensible. So we're going to spend the whole episode drinking and talking about how much we love Emma Frost. What? I am Jay Edidin. This week I am recording without Miles Stokes, who is still recovering from New York Comic Con. Actually, technically still at New York Comic Con as we record this, but we can, we can pretend in retrospect. And I am here to explain the X-Men because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 219 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. As you may recall, we were in the early 90s, and we are going to be diverging significantly from that to do a special con episode. You might have heard our sofa specials um, from Rose City Comic Con, from Flame Con, from other shows. This week, um, because Miles is out, this is taking the place of our regular episode, and I have with me three guests... And we are here specifically to tell you why Emma Frost is awesome and probably better than any of us. So, um, with me I have Sean and McGuire, Leah Williams, and T. Fugner. You want to each introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your history with your history with Emma and what brings you to the show. Hello, I'm Sean and McGuire, and I once fell into an entire vat of craft glitter. And what brought me to the show tonight was a lift. <laughs> Hi, I'm Leah Williams, and um, what brought me to the show tonight was Shannon's Lift. Hi, I'm T. Fugner, and what brought me to the show tonight is that I live here. Um, but I guess I guess um, we're all here because we like him or Frost a lot. Yeah, you might. yeah. we're literalists. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> we all have strong feelings about Emma Frost. In fact, I feel like I, I have in this room three of the greatest, longest-running Emma Frost fans and apologists who I have ever met. We do um, not need to apologize. No, no, apologists. Emma does not require apologia. Yes. <laughs> Emma, nice. Emma may not require it, but that doesn't mean that it isn't, it isn't occasionally worth engaging in. Fair. Um, and two of you, Shannon and Leah, are both X-Men and comics writers. Uh, Leah is... I, is, I I think it's going to be out by the time this airs, but wrote the X-Men Black Emma Frost one-shot. Um, Shannon wrote several of the X-Men Black one-shots. No, only one. Only no, one. Only one. I, only one. I, I, have to I, I don't know, too. but I only did uh, X-Men Black Mystique, Mystique which, right. which frankly is like doing six different one-shots. Yeah, I was going to say Mystique. True. Yeah. So that's probably where that came from. Yes. Um, oh, no. It's because I was thinking of that at the same time as the X-Men Gold Kitty Pride Annual. Yes. Um, and is also currently writing Ghost Spider and... Both of them have unannounced secret projects, which we are not going to tell you about on this show, because we're discreet, even though we're drinking. We're also drinking. We're, we're also drinking. drinking. And Cheers. Tea, Cheers. whom you've heard me talk about on the show. I'm not sure if you've ever actually, your voice has been on the show I've before. I've been on the video reviews. Yes. So T is amazing, and I really like her, and we're married. <laughs> um, but she is also a long, long time Emma Frost fan and Emma Frost cosplayer. Yes. Um, and probably the person best qualified to answer some of the eternal Emma Frost costume questions of, like, How does, does that, that work outside out? of a drawing? With enough glue, anything works outside of a drawing. So, I guess starting going in, um, the, the kind of, the, 
the first question we usually ask anyone, everyone is, is what brought you to the X-Men? But I'm wondering in particular, what brought you to Emma Frost as a character? What, what made you go, yes, her? I connected with her once I was older. I, I was familiar with her um, as a teenager, but it wasn't until I, you know, was in my mid-twenties and now that um, I understood her more. I, I had gone through enough life experiences at that point to um, identify with her rage and compassion and her brutal heart. Um, and it's, it's just developed into a prolific obsession. I have always liked Emma, but I didn't really love Emma until Generation X um, because that was when I realized that she was the first actual responsible adult that had ever been in charge of the kids. Like the, the Hellions had died by that point. Um, and if that's a spoiler, then we have a 30 year threshold. No, we've already covered that. Okay, good. We've already covered that on the show. Good, um, good. And we are, I mean, yeah, we swear we talk about spoilers good. sometimes. We're not going to spoil anything super recent, but if it's been covered on the show, we're going to go there. And if it's, if it's, yeah, if it's, I'd say under like two years old. I mean, when the Hellions died, I was way younger than they were. So I didn't quite understand what was going on. But when we lost Blink in Generation X, when you saw Emma actually confronting again, the loss of her students, um, I didn't want to be her at that point. I wanted her to be in charge of my field trip, but it was just this thought that suddenly there was someone who actually cared and not just because maybe you'll be bangable later, which is the error I always got off of Xavier. Yeah. It occurs to me. She's kind of the first, I guess Magneto tries with the new mutants, but she's the, one of the first people who's teaching at the Xavier school who actually teaches the kids and treats the kids like kids. She's also the only one who's actually qualified to teach. She yeah. is educated for this. She specializes in it. And not even, like, Xavier has a million PhDs, and not a single one of them is in education. He, like, Emma Frost is more qualified to teach students, to teach children, than Xavier is. Yeah, and with Magneto, they're... He, he did his best with the New Mutants, mm -hmm. but it was always like leaving the kids with Grandpa for the weekend. Like, oh, there yeah. was never the sense that these were his kids. He was just going to feed them a lot of sugar, get them all spun up, and then give them back. Emma, those were her kids, and if Xavier had come back for Generation X, she'd have cut him. Oh, so how, how, did, how did I yeah, get here right I, now? Yes. So, um, I read a lot of fanfic and I started writing fan fiction about Tony Stark going to boarding school with Christian Frost, and it sort of ballooned, snowballed from there. Um, I got really interested in Emma's family and Emma's background sort of first and being from a really screwed up family myself. Um, I, I ended up sort of identifying with a sort of nebulous kid Emma that we've seen very little of um, up till now. But there's sort of, you know, these these threads of in her grown up self um, first and then kind of from there got to grown up Emma. I also um, sort of as a cosplayer and somebody who really likes making things and wearing things, I'm always super interested in characters who are very deliberate about their appearances. And that's one of the things that makes her Fan fantastic character to cosplay. I've cosplayed her more than I've cosplayed anyone else. Emma Frost and 
her appearance and the way that she places so much weight on physical perfection, it doesn't come from a healthy place. It, it comes mm-hmm. from an abusive family life. And we've seen her take diamond form to not feel thirsty, to, to not feel hungry, to not cry. And the, the metaphor of that is terribly gripping and deeply sad to me because the importance she puts on her looks is, you know, a first set of armor for her and diamond form is second to that. And I, I really appreciate, and this may come from a place of she was originally positioned as a villain, um, and villains are sometimes allowed to admit things that heroes can't, but you have that line in Grant Morrison's run where it's powers, brains, and the best body money can buy. Yes. You almost never get admission from these women who are running around drawn to the comic artist's point of perfection that maybe that's not just achievable with luck and genetics, that maybe you need help. Emma is the only one who's been open about that and had that as part of her character um having multiple rhinoplasties and Mm -hmm. at least one boob job um it's it's canon and i think all of that became canon in morrison's Morrison's run run. um, yeah and men stuff yeah exactly one of the things that i really appreciate about emma coming from that and one of the things that always really grabbed me about her as a character is that for all that seamlessness and perfection is essential to her public presentation she's incredibly candid about the extent to which she's Mm self-constructed yes oh and i was gonna say and um and actually quite broken when she's not performing in public Mm -hmm. yes but i think that also feeds into she is the only one that's qualified to be a teacher she admits these things because she wants her students to know exactly you're not failing if you don't look exactly like me you're not failing if you're not perfect all the time also to make sure that children never have to go through the kind of upbringing that she yeah. went through because it was brutal oh, yeah. it was a brutal home life and then she got into an inappropriate relationship with her high school english teacher mm-hmm. And he ended up dumping her when he found out that she was a mutant. And the she's almost reckless in the way that she works to carve out a better world for children because she believes in it. Yeah. She yeah. wants it so bad. She and Cyclops are such good counterparts in that regard. And the, my favorite eras of the Xavier Institute are when the two of them are co-running it because the extent to which that drive to not have a generation of kids grow up in the circumstances that they did either personally in a home life or just with regards to mutant identity is the driving detail and the extent to which they actually talk about pedagogy is really nice too but yeah they are they are incredibly good at the things that I think of as as sort of core to being an, an adult among children which is recognizing where they end and the people around them begin. They are broken in complementary ways, which is why they make each other better as characters. Because if you're writing them both true to the way those characters have been presented, they can't have the same exact pitfalls. Mm -hmm. And that's not true of every possible pairing that you've got kicking around there. Yeah. And they're not necessarily intuitive, which is one of the things I really like about them. Yeah. So going forward, you know, you've talked about what, brought you to and why you really love Emma as a character. What are the comics that sort of, that have your Emma in them, the version of it that, that makes you go, oh yes, this is the one who I'd write, this is the one who I read, this is the one I identify with. Cause she's, you know, she's been showing up in comics since 
the late seventies and any character in those franchises has been through so many writers and so many artists and so many versions that I feel like you can pretty much cherry pick any characterization. And so there's, you know, there's the Firestar limited series, Emma Frost. <laughs> I was going to say, Emma's is special though, because she's been, I would say handled enough times by writers who either didn't like her or didn't understand her yeah. that she has this really diverse uh, kind of patchwork quilt um, to draw from when writing her now. And it it becomes a kind of alchemy when you have that many different stories included in one character, even if it was accidental, even if it came from a place of like not knowing her um, or, or liking her as much, but wanting the quickest route to getting people to care about her, which is... Uh, often with female characters, tragedy, mm-hmm. um, it, it created something accidental and complex and nuanced and completely gripping at this point. Um, but it's, it's not anything that anybody set out to do. It, and, it was a chorus of voices. And her tragedies are, or at least her initial tragedies in the comics, I feel like are not the ones that I would typically wince at seeing associated with a female character. They're about the death of a younger younger superheroes in her charge. Yeah. And they're about, I mean, I guess the, the stuff with the Phoenix and fighting the Phoenix, but that's just about straight up power confrontations. Um, and so she, and she never has, she never has that point where she ceases to be self-defining in the ways that the tragedies around a lot of the other women in superhero comics are. I would say that my defining Emma is also Generation X and and even Morrison's New X-Men, not not the art, (laughs) not the art, Um, but uh, the fact that we, we got to see Emma through the very beginning of Scott's kind of worshipful gaze of her um, is something that I really appreciate. And any iteration of Mama Bear, Emma, yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah. is what I associate most strongly with her. My defining Emma is split up through a bunch of titles. The Morrison mattered a lot. The, the following New Mutants and New X-Men runs mm-hmm. where you see her fully headmistressing. Um, but really, for me, the, the moment where I went, okay, this is who Emma is, this is the, the fulcrum you turn the character on, is in Civil War, when mm-hmm. Iron Man comes to yes. her, yes. just see, where were you when our babies were burning? And that is that is Emma. Her selfishness mm-hmm. is entirely directed at the mutant race. And if she has to present herself as the most selfish person that ever lived to protect the mutants, uh, that is what she'll do. My mother's knowledge of X-Men is not great she uh, she managed to somehow raise me and not really pick up on most of what was going on um but she knows who emma is and anytime i start getting worked up about the x-men she'll come up and go there there darling where were they when your babies were burning it's all <laughs> yeah yeah that moment is incredible and there's another moment during civil war ii when she's uh during civil war also or during civil war ii during civil war also okay um, when she's talking to Carol Danvers. Do you guys yes. remember this? Yes. And she... And she drags Carol into the... Yes, yes. into yeah. the tragedy of Genosha. Mm-hmm. And she is just giving 
she's taking the strongest route to proving her point, which is, you know, we did this. Where were you guys? And if you are planning on fighting this war, you're going to need a lot of shovels. Get prepared to bury your babies like you mm-hmm prepare yourself for this now. And and the way she delivers it, she doesn't mince words. She doesn't protect the feelings of those who she's uh, speaking to. It is incredibly powerful. Oh, yeah. So I've got a couple sort of definitive Emma moments. I re- So I have very, very mixed feelings about Joss Whedon as a writer, and especially how he writes women. Yeah. But I love his Emma. Yeah, he did I a think, really good I think Emma. he does a phenomenal Emma. He does... And he does Emma's dynamics with the characters around her very, very well. Because writing Scott. Yeah, because well, writing a character well and writing character relationships well can be really different things, especially mm-hmm. when you're coming in with a bunch of characters you grew up reading and with that knowledge of them. You know, you see people who have a really good grasp on one character, but just don't quite know how to make those intersections work. And I really love the way his Emma interacts with the world and the characters around her and the dynamics between them. He also gave us the kitty forgiveness moment. So we have to credit him for that. Like we got some closure between what Emma written as a villain had done to Kitty pride in the past. Mm -hmm. And it it was bridged into kind of healthier territory today. Yeah. Yeah. Though I, I also kind of credit in the negative way because Joss did focus so much on the Kitty Emma relationship, which been allowed to lie fallow for a long time. It is sometimes very easy to take the surface level characterization and dismiss the deeper. And I feel like it was Whedon's era that, however, incidentally ushered in another wave of Emma Frost is just a bitch. That's all she's here to be. Because we suddenly got a lot of Kitty Emma interactions that were Kitty being very unwarrantedly sharp, especially after the conclusion of his run. I... I don't give them that much credit for writing that. I, I think it's it's it comes from a more reductive place of um, the default for a lot of these writers is we love and protect Kitty Pride mm-hmm. and Emma Frost is just a fucking bitch and that's what we're gonna write mm-hmm. and we're gonna do it over and over again despite the canon that has been course corrected. That's fair. It, the timing was how it read to me. Yeah, yeah. I we see Emma be inappropriately rude and bitchy to women all the time and i never look at it as something that she would actually do yeah Yeah, Yeah. same emma is aggressively dismissive absolutely short absolutely rude she's impatient she just she has never specifically been the character who defines herself as the woman in a group of men by attacking other women like that has never been part of her characterization and that's always felt really critically important yeah so one of the things that i wanted to bring up in more recent emma history is um her teaching kid jean gray yes so good how much i love that that because because it's and i mean and it sort of follows uh, you know follows what you folks have been talking about in terms of she just she knows that she needs to do this and she has to do this and she knows that she can you know she can make this young woman amazingly skilled at this thing that she has this raw talent for and she puts 
all of these weird feelings aside and does that impeccably well and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's Emma. Yeah. She does yeah. that yeah. every time. She yeah. is she's selfless in a way that I find terrifying. Yeah. Because somebody hypothesized recently like how great would it be if she hosted the phoenix permanently no 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 because the first thing she's gonna do is kill herself she's gonna take the phoenix out of play yes exactly she would that's exactly what she would do instead of hurting other people and it it just it's a terrifying capability that she has we were talking about people in runs where she she's she's been written well and Greg Pak, speaking of phoenixes, writes consistently good Emma and writes one of one of I think the great alternate Emmas too, in in his Extreme X in the or at least the run, the run that preceded his Extreme X Men series, um, who is is I think uh, Emmeline Frost Summers. Yes, Emmeline Frost Summers is wonderful. There are two other Emma appearances that I, I really gravitate towards. One is from an issue, and I don't remember what series it's from. Um, it is it is Emma and Danger. I have it in my head that Gabriel Hernandez Walter did the art, so that might help me narrow it down. But it's the two of them on a heist, and it's Emma very much as a mentor figure to Danger, as both a redeemed villain and someone who is navigating identity around that, and identity as a female identifying person in a sort of bizarre context in Matrix. Um, and it's 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 a lovely combination of Emma as the absolute elegant queen of seamless snark and Emma as the surprisingly raw and genuine teacher and mentor. The other, and we've actually got a question about this, which I'm basically answering now, is um, Emma in Death of X. I have complicated feelings about that series. Yes, I think we yeah. all do. And yeah. I aggressively dislike some of the stuff that came after it, but within the series itself and the twist of it and how it works, like Absolutely. That is one of the most raw and real versions of Emma I think that we've ever seen. And I shout out, massive shout out to Javier Garon. Um, and the way he drew the the hints around that because yeah. if you go back and read mm-hmm. there are panels every panel where scott and emma aren't in the center and scott's not doing something specifically they've they're in the same physical position yeah, with the same facial expression it's really subtle but it's it's just phenomenal death of x kind of of hit my how to be a good bad b movie rules mm, which is yeah. it doesn't matter how bad the root concept is once you're committed to it you commit all the way. I, I don't think mm. Death of X should have happened. We could have that argument for six hours. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel that some of the underlying choices that took us there were not motivated by a love of character or story, necessarily. Um, but once they said, this is where we're going, the Scott-Emma relationship especially was committed 100%. What would these characters do? This is the only logical outcome. And it's such an amazing writing trick, too, because we so rarely in comics, because of how point of view exists in them, get to see characters that specifically through other characters' eyes. Yeah. And it's one of the few scenarios oh, yeah. where, um, so so in Death of X, for those of you who haven't read it, this has been out for a few years, I'm going to spoil it. Um, the, the Cyclops in it beyond very early in the first issue is an illusion that Emma has generated to basically give him a death that she feels is meaningful and what he would have wanted rather than an entirely incidental one. And and it's positioned as her form of grieving him. Yeah. So mm-hmm. she's been grieving him in plain sight this whole time alone. 
Yeah. Which is a peak Emma fine, yes. but yeah. also peak Emma. Peak Emma. We're back to self-sacrifice. Yeah. Like she will give up her own feelings to give him what he deserves. It's a eulogy. It's also an amazing testament to... You talked about senses of character, and I remember when the first issue came out, and it was the first time Adult Cyclops had shown up in the comics in ages because they'd done the eight-month jump, and then he was Mm -hmm. dead. Um, And I remember tweeting before I'd figured out what the twist was, God, I had missed what... God, I've missed watching Cyclops insist that he's fine in the face of of the obvious. Like, that's literally the first thing that the, her, her illusory Cyclops does. Yeah. And there's there's actually, there's this bit of, of, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those, like, perfect examples of someone mourning, focusing on the things that matter about a person and that, you know, and that they, you know, are clearly, like, processing in their head and remembering and just keep coming back to and it's it, it it's it's really heartbreaking and it's also you know when you know what's happening and you go back and reread it it makes it so much worse yes it's yeah. so much worse yeah. after you know than it is the first time through and that's building a telepathic shrine to him over time and it's it just gets sadder and sadder mm-hmm. well yeah. the last line of it is so utterly wrenching and i actually pulled up the panel because i wanted the wording exactly which is um i'm gone all that's left is the idea of me but here's the nice thing. Ideas never die. And when you take those words out of the context of the hero doing the self-sacrifice play and into the context of someone actively grieving for that person. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it makes, it puts the whole story in a better perspective because a lot of the time we would be looking at Cyclops' actions and being like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. But... But it's now not a Cyclops story, it's an Emma Frost exactly. story, and that's the secret of exactly. it. And it's a surprise. Yes. Yeah, no, and I even remember, I remember reading through it the first time, and I don't remember who I was talking to, but actually having a couple of those what-the-fuck moments and being like, Scott, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and then realizing it's not him. Yeah. yeah. And it, it makes so much more sense. Yeah. If I ever got a tattoo, an X-Men tattoo, and I almost have gotten this, it would be Ideas Never Die. Mm. I have it on my, my punk Man, I've, <laughs> I've thought a lot about what I would do if I got one, and that is... Now I really want to do that. That's a really I, good I've idea. I've come so close to it already. Yeah. Yeah, I, ha- I have one. I have I, one, because we have an X-Men one, and I have a Captain America one, because both Aww. of their symbols are your here glyphs, and we were long distance for a long time, and Aww. the X-Men yeah. are my thing, and Cap is T's thing, and we're... Really sappy. Yes. That's so cute. You're so good when you're sappy, though. <laughs> oh, thank you. But I was going to say, yeah, God, I like the idea of an idea. That's a really good tattoo. Yeah. Okay, it's so I guess I know what, we know what we're all doing tattoo. tomorrow. Are we all going out and getting... Do we need to have a couple more drinks? I mean, no, we're... No, we're, 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 we're it's it's 10 two and we're in Queens. I feel like the places we're going to get to that are going to be open at that point are going to be challenging. Um, but... Yeah, actually, I would. I, if, we, if we can collectively find an artist, I feel like that would be the, the best. I mean, no, I, would. <laughs> I would do it. Yes. Oh, man. My only tattoo is a Stephen King quote, so let's go. <laughs> I have. I don't have an X-Men tattoo at all yet because I'm so indecisive. I've thought about getting specifically the um the 1602 version of Scott who has the X-Scar. Uh-huh. Hey, oh, that's nice. such a cool idea. But that's a good one. That's kind of brutal. And I, I, I don't know if that's the one that I'd want to get. As, as the central one. Um, I have two emojis tattooed on my butt. Cool. Which ones? Which ones? It's a secret. 
I'm trying to like if make we put it a couple more. I have a tattoo under my boob. That's also a secret. Nice. Wait, are they the standard emoji set or are they like extra emoji? <laughs> Jay and Miles after dark. Wait, which which generation are you talking about? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, I my, think it, my it's one of the later generations. And listeners, actually, there are a couple people who are in in the recording who are in the room who you, whom you haven't heard speak yet, whom we're going to drag into the recording later. But if, if the mysterious laughter is 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 not your imagination, nor is it a chorus from next door for the FlameCon panel, nor is it a projection of Scott Summers. <laughs> oh no! Do you think, do you think he, he giggles no. that melodically though? I don't really see it. Y'all, if, if we had Emma Frost's powers, they would not be manifesting in just random projections of Scott Summers. We'd be running the world. Oh yeah, Ooh. unquestionably. I it, yeah, I do a better job. It, it frustrates me that Emma Frost is not already running shit right? in yeah. the comics. Yeah, I honestly I feel like. Uh, so there was like an unpopular X-Men opinions one and I knew exactly what I had to say about it and it's that like Emma Frost is more important than Magneto she's she's complex and nuanced and she deserves to be elevated and Mm -hmm. treated with the same dignity and respect as Magneto and that kind of takes us back to like how do people think of a character with how much gravitas they have when Emma left the Jean Grey school, we suddenly started getting all of these jokes about, oh, ha, ha, Emma Frost teaching ethics. She is more equipped to teach ethics than literally any other telepath that has ever come through that series. I mean, which is part of her teaching Jean. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, suddenly we had all of these jokes. We had a danger room sequence where the bad guy was Emma in full dominatrix mode. That's way too long ago for most of these kids who only knew her as headmistress, who only knew her as a disciplinarian, you know, suddenly they're making fun of their teacher. It's also just super reductive. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a caricature and, and, to me, it always reads as insincere, like, and, and maybe it was intentional, and I'm just, like, too devoted. I'm too much of an Emma stan to see otherwise, but I read stuff like that, and I'm like, this is mean. Wrong. <laughs> and it's so depressingly and profoundly reflective of what we see everywhere. It's, it's people looking at a woman whom they're angry about or upset with for whatever reason. And I feel like there are a lot of legitimate reasons to dislike Emma as a Mm -hmm. character, especially if you're another fictional character. Um, I mean, but, and just going immediately for slut shaming. Yeah. And attacking her for her appearance and attacking her for appearance that has deliberately and explicitly sexual connotations. And it's, and, and it's so gross and it's so screwed up that when you, I mean, Emma has done some really awful stuff. If you're going to go after her, go after her for blowing up ponies and stuff. She was being manipulated by an abusive figure at the time. And also, she just wanted Firestar to, you know, come into her own as a mutant. Yeah. She was teaching her the hard way that that ponies are so bad. I've been to Chincoteague. What? <laughs> okay, I want I, I feel like digressing to the Chickatee story is important because it involves one of my favorite phrases of all time. Okay, so for everybody who's read the Misty of Chickatee books, when I was like eight or nine, I like begged my mother to go there and she drove me to wherever it is. It's like in Virginia or somewhere. I, I keep on thinking um, it's in Maryland, but I have no yeah, actual I think basis it's in, for that I belief. think it's in Virginia, but she drove me to Chincoteague and that's how I found out that the Chincoteague ponies at this point are so inbred, they're like the Habsburgs of ponies. <laughs> 
my little <laughs> What will your adventure be? Can <laughs> it be a generations long feud and pissing? No, yeah, I mean, it's mostly that I'm pretty sure that they had a lot of very recessive mutations. I mean, which kind of brings us back to this conversation, but... Yeah, so who cares about ponies? I mean, yeah. fuck them. Don't fuck ponies, that's called <laughs> You will get in trouble. All right, so so official ex- explain the X-Men stance on, on things you shouldn't fuck. So far, we've got cactuses and ponies... And the space-time continuum. And the space-time <laughs> continuum. Well, that's specifically... Don't I could stick argue your dick. in favor of that. Like, no, 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 no let's fuck yeah, right? The thing is, part of the joke of don't stick your dick in the space-time continuum is that everyone's dick is already, by definition, in the space-time continuum. So Okay, so it's know. just masturbation. Let's rock. So it's a swinger party. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I want to know what the space-time continu- so space continuum's keys look like in this context. <laughs> well, they're Earth. Like, oh, okay. So <sighs> Wow, that took a sharp left. Reminder, we're drinking. Emma, ethics. Oh, we are drinking. We are drinking. We are drinking an official White Queen cocktail that, that we have. We have yeah, so we got gin, prosecco, rose elderflower syrup, a little bit of a very secret elixir that was smuggled out of France, and uh, smoked bitters. And it's delicious. It really is. Thank you. Mine's well, broken. You need more. Do you know more? She needs to know more. All right. Oh, I'm going to just steal Diana. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. do you want the sparkly one? Because it's probably cold by now. <gasps> no, I'm good. We also have glitter wine. We do. Glitter wine! We have this bottle of wine that, that someone gave us as a housewarming gift that's, that's like, purple and glittery. It and did. we've been kind of afraid to drink it, but also feeling like we should save it for a really spectacular occasion. I love that stuff. It's so good. It tastes like rancid raspberry bukkake, and you should totally buy it. This is going to be a fun episode. This really is. Yeah, we are an M-rated podcast. <laughs> What's raspberry? <laughs> and drinking. It's in the fridge. So, All right, Diana, do you want to just jump into this one? <laughs> you were waving wildly from the corner. I was like, and you were worried about me. <laughs> See, the thing is, I know these three well enough that I can predict their sharp lefts. I've never met you before this evening. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't just randomly bring up no, 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 to be on so the podcast. Um, although, like that has basically happened on the show before. That happened in our first um, convention hotel room special, or no, our second one. People were just in the room. Well, look, Karen Gillen showed up with like three other people, and they were all they were all extra looking <laughs> people. Like, it was a great episode. I was like, Hi, Marguerite Bennett. Tell us machete stories, and it worked out great. That's really funny. Yeah. <sighs> So Emma Frost. Yes. So yeah. So I was want to go back to something Leo was talking about, and how one of the things that I love about Emma is that she's actually she's one of the few characters who we've seen like transform from sexy evil to den mother. But she's also still and, super sexy. Oh yeah. yeah. She. But it's, it's there's but like there it, there's like sexy evil, and then there's just like being sexy while you're something well, else. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Because it's something she deliberately cultivates and curates yeah. and works at because she knows being physically attractive, being conventionally physically attractive, grants her access to spaces that she wouldn't otherwise have access yes. to. Yeah, and performative yeah. femininity, you know, for all that she was created by men who don't necessarily, didn't necessarily know they were tapping into this, uh, Leah and I were talking earlier today. I'm not a big makeup person in my daily life. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have discovered that I am treated more professionally and as more competent at my job with a full face, a clown makeup. I can do my eyes in 20 different shades of liner. And the fact that I have put in that effort to perform femininity gets mm-hmm. me treated as more of a professional and showing up bare faced. So that's one of the things that's really interesting about cosplaying Emma. And I've done like seven or eight different Emma costumes at this point. But um, I, without costumes, I don't know how many people here have seen me out of cosplay. Um, I have like super short curly hair and I'm kind of, I don't know how I would describe my style of dress, but I wear like a lot of jeans and t-shirts. And then I Professional, go, but in ways that tend to be vivid and comfortable. Yeah. And then I go to conventions dressed as Emma Frost and there's sort of this feeling, you know, People will like get out of your way. Um, it's it's yeah, yeah it, it's it's really interesting. It's there's this really interesting power that comes with people perceiving you in a diff- in a specific way, even if that specific way is just this costume that you're putting on, even if it's like performative, weaponized feminism. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the word I wanted to jump on is weaponized, not just performative. Because it is very much that. It's funny, I was thinking, I've been going in the the opposite direction in terms of physical presentation, and this is the first New York large convention that I've been at where I'm fairly sure the majority of people are reading me as male because I have sideburns now. It's very exciting. (laughs) Um, If you've been listening to the podcast for a long time, you know that this was my primary goal in, in, yeah. Well, I had, I had, very, I, I was very careful about just like I'm not going to have any expectations. I recognize that I'm not going to come out of this looking like Charlie Cox, despite my like deep regrets on that front. Um, I just, I just want his like slightly bemused facial expression. I want to be able to do that. That's fair. But um, That's so, achievable. so in an attempt to basically focus my goals on something that was silly and frivolous, which is something I do a lot, is just be like, I know I have too many expectations, but I'm just going to put them all in this one weird space. The only thing I really focused on was I want sideburns. I want cool 70s dad sideburns. And I'm getting there. Yeah. But um, I was getting read consistently as a dude and moving through crowds. Apparently, when you are read as a guy and you have like convention floor death glare, people get out of your way and apologize for no reason. And it's really, really weird seeing how strangers respond to me because everyone who I work with, everyone who knows me, everyone who I have any connection to in the comics industry has known me since pre-transition or is aware of me pre-transition. And that's, that's always going to be sort of part of how they perceive and interact with me. But like with strangers, the difference in how people respond in that specific context is really distressing, mm-hmm. actually. It's, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that it's easier to get through a convention floor and have people move. But on the other hand, like the fact that the, the difference between distress being read as a reason for dismissal versus di- distress being read as threat is a really jarring thing to, yeah. Yeah. And this, this weekend has kind of been, sorry, I've been thinking about that a lot this weekend in context yeah. of this. I like your sideburns a lot. I can't wait for them to finish pushing out a little bit more so I can convince you to let me fill them with glitter. (gasps) Everyone's sideburns. You think I'm not going to get to that first. (laughs) Neither of you is, because what's going to happen when they get to that point is that I'm going to bleach them and the rest of my hair, dye it pink, and dress up as Phoenix (laughs) Blood Fire. But we can put glitter in them first. Yeah, we can put glitter. Or I can bring glitter tomorrow. 
I will let you glitter me up tomorrow. Um, I am I am with the caveat that I am I have weird texture issues. That's fine. That I'm not generally a glitter person, but on the other hand, I share a bedroom and shower with tea, so I end up half covered in glitter half the time nice. anyway. I have two different brands so. of easily applied and easily removed cosmetic glitter. We can have a party. All right. I have tomorrow is the day I have two panels. So if you want to just like glitter hey. me up, I will just I will I will glam the hell out of how to build positive internet communities. <laughs> Yeah. But Emma and feminine femininity. So an interesting point in in terms of what you're talking about, about, about um, conventions and cost Mm -hmm. and going back to the cosplay thing. I feel. um, So one of the really interesting things for me as a cosplayer is I've cosplayed a lot of different things and I've cosplayed a bunch of booby costumes. For those of you who don't know me, um, I'm a 30 double J bra size, which is big. Um, and it's, you know, and I get harassed a lot when I'm wearing booby costumes. I've never gotten harassed dressing as Emma Frost, no matter how few clothes I'm wearing. Um, and I think that that says a lot about the character and a lot about what people have sort of internalized about her Mm -hmm. and how she would react to that, Mm -hmm. that it just never happens. Yeah, that Emma Frost very explicitly is not a commodity. Can I say something? One of the things that I imprinted on because I'm old was really like Claremont era, you know, mm-hmm. the original flavor. <laughs> Emma, color. Right. And yes, exactly. Boots, you know, the whole yes. thing. And I think that what was really interesting was that it was clear even at a young age that this was some like male, like Barbie doll, like super villain, you know, femme fantasy. But at the same time, for me, it was remarkably powerful. I didn't know about BDSM yet, you know, because I was like, 14 and it was the 80s but um i thought that you know seeing her in kind of a dominant role not so much that she was just wearing that traditional like venus and furs drag but that she actually behaved kind of like a dominant woman like she I was this online did not take any she shit. and domino both exude yes. femme top energy mm-hmm. so she was such a top. emma wears the strap she does and what's interesting is like my favorite emma's historically or when she's getting in people's heads and like messing with them. Like I love her in Firestorm, but I love when Magneto is just trying to do his best to run new mutants and she's literally appearing in his head and like taunting him about how he's fucking it up. I mean, she's now when she and Scott get together, she's appearing in his head and like messing with him. This to me is in a huge part. Way. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know what mm, it is, but it the is, is, uh, it crosses it is boundaries both, because of what it is, it is but both, it's not the same right, thing as intact. It is I both dominant and hot is my point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is what that crosses like the most disturbing aren't the fidelity and marriage boundaries though it's specifically the fact that the first time she does it she has them falling out of a plane mm-hmm. uncontrollably oh yeah, yeah. yeah. it's, yeah, it's not true. a fidelity yeah. thing because Scott had already like well that's a that, whole that other mess God. yeah it, it was yeah. I think yeah. crossing the, the mental boundary the, the consent yeah. Yeah. yeah and she historically has been really good about observing telepathic boundaries mm-hmm. of consent in ways that not even Jean Grey is well, Jean like, is terrible about that Jean's bad like, that's one of the things and that's she really also can't even help it like but, she no, just yeah, she's, she's, people she like is codependent no that's Jean why. is Sorry, the telepathic Charles but, Xavier race yes. yeah. and she and, is and that's something you see. And one of my, actually, one of my, you mentioned, you know, your favorite yeah. Emma's are when she's doing that stuff. Some of my favorite genes are when she is visibly and clearly stepping across those lines. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's, there's a point where she basically press gangs a team of alternate X-Men to go rescue Scott and Logan and Professor Xavier from Genosha. 
and it's incredibly disturbing mm -hmm. and she just does it and like the the extent like my issue with Jean is not Jean as a character it's the idea of Jean as a paragon rather than yeah. Yeah. recognize her yes. Yes. recognizing yes. the incredibly morally and I'm sorry for the automatic pun grace spaces she yes. actually <laughs> yes. I mean, my problem with Jean has never been Jean I'm, I'm fairly well established for not being a big Jean Grey fan it's not the character's fault the character doesn't exist the problem is that she is so often used as a device for reducing the other ex-women because she has to be the best woman in the room and I don't like that paradigm well she was invented to be the girl yeah exactly, exactly. She's, she's got the Stanley wrote her in the, the 60s girl. girl syndrome yeah. yeah which is is you see carried across characters I'm gonna jump in really quickly because there is a question that we got that I am really fascinated with and I really want to hear everyone's answer to because we've talked about Emma as a hero and this is a great question which is how would you go about writing Emma as an antagonist to the X-Men in the modern age? Not necessarily as a villain but like what makes Emma antagonist work? I right now would write her as basically none of you all are equipped to teach. None of you all are fucking class, not clarified. Qualified. I've had alcohol. Qualified. None of you are qualified to teach. The only way you're going to bring your class standards up is if I force you. So I would literally have Emma finding ways to harass them into improving their standardized test scores. <laughs> like, would Emma be pro-standardized testing? No, like, she, would, she would be no. pro-results. Yeah. But, but you know what I mean. Yeah. She would be coming at them, if I'm writing her as an antagonist rather than a villain, mm -hmm. basically coming at them to force them to improve the way the school is run as a school. So Emma wouldn't be pro-standardized test scores, but if it was required that they get a certain score on the standardized they test, they would damn well right. get it. And she would use telepathy to interfere <laughs> yeah. and yeah. make sure they got that yep. score. One of Emma's like, characters. Are you sure you want to circle C? Yeah. Darling, I don't think writing A for every answer is the way. <laughs> one of the things I love about one. Emma's ethics is her general willingness to basically evaluate rules and say, nope, that's a bad rule. We're just not going to follow it. Mm -hmm. Everything is contextual. That's yeah. what I was yeah, related to that. about her growing yes. up. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so let me see. I'm going to go through some more listener questions because we're probably running pretty low on time at this point. Um, yeah. And there are, there are, there are a lot of these and a lot of good ones and a lot of interesting ones. We've already answered some of them just in conversation. Um, so here is, here is a, question that we get a lot and one to which I feel like the answer is fundamentally at this point incredibly subjective. This is from uh, Richard is Good on Tumblr and Richard is Good wants to know what you where you would put Emma age-wise because she's been so far all over the place. Um, she seemed like she was maybe Sebastian Shaw's contemporary or just a bit younger than him in her first appearances. Yeah, but Sebastian she Shaw claimed, doesn't age normally. Right, she claimed she was powers. 23 in the Morrison run, which she I She claimed she was like 27. Did she say she was 27? Well, she said she, she was 30 something at yeah. that point. She said she was 27. There's been, like, she's been all over the place age-wise. Like, what? Where would you put her and where would you put her relative to the other characters who've been around her frequently? Based on first class, where we have Xavier approaching her while she's still a, still working, you know, as a pole girl, mm -hmm. rather than having moved fully into her white queen position, I'd say she's the same age Scott is. Because she's very much in that story drawn as being the same age as that generation of X-Men when they were taken by the Living Island. And I think that fits our frequently contradictory timeline more accurately than most of the firm assertions we can make. I think she's not going to age past 27. 
Um, Diamond fool. She keeps turning 27. Um, because even if she is getting older, she's not publicly, she knows about uh, the way she'll be treated differently. Mm-hmm. And she's not going to relinquish access to the same sorts of like benefits that she gets being a super fuckable younger woman. Um, So she's going to keep lying about her age. Also keep in mind that she is a telepath. So when she's not in diamond form, she can look whatever age she wants. And she's going to do that (laughs) for the rest of her life. I'd say between diamond form, access to mask, access to any other mutants with healing factors, like elixir, darling, fix my telomeres. (laughs) So I thought about that for a while and I, I was there. And then I watched the first season of Legion and I saw Jean Smart mm-hmm. in it and realized that my, my ideal outcome with Emma is her in a position with enough solid and recognized institutional power that she can just step into that and retain every bit of the Emma power and every bit of the presence. And Oh, I yeah. absolutely want old lady Emma. Yeah. To but I specifically, I specifically, I want, I want old lady Emma, but I want old lady Emma played by Jean Smart, which is also so weird to me because I associate her so specifically and exclusively with designing women. But, um, <laughs> I don't know it's she's like, serious. no, she's, she's, she's Charlene. And she's, um, she's, I don't remember the name of the character on, on Legion, but she is the older woman who always wears white. Yeah, I'm just sticking with the gifted. I don't watch any of the things. We haven't watched the second season, but the first season of Legion is superlative television. Have have you watched the gifted? Yes. 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 So small spoiler, because this is how stupid brother got me to watch the gifted. (laughs) I have been refusing. And he's like, sweetheart, you're very, you're very depressed right now. And you need a good thing. And I need you to watch the gifted. And I'm like, I don't want to watch the frickin' Strucker twins being held up and mutants and blah, blah, blah. And he says, they just picked up a telepath. Her name is Esme. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I love the clues are in it. The oh, are so good. The clues are the best part I of the show. I have watched the sequence where Esme picks up her sisters about 30 times. It's so Sometimes good. when I'm sad, I just watch it again. It's the first time we've Fuck ever Esme. seen. She's the worst one. She is the worst yeah. one. She is. But that's kind of awesome, and she's so good at it in the show. <sighs> I love that show's version of Esme. I love that show's version of Polaris. I think it's one of the best versions yeah. of Polaris who's yeah. ever been oh, written God, or yes. played. Basically, this is what would have happened to the Cuckoos if Esme had been able to take out Sophie clean, and then rather than running off with Magneto, took out Which Celeste, time? too. The first time. There have been during two the riot? Like, yeah, during the riot. If she had been able to take oh. out Sophie clean... And then took out Celeste, too, since Celeste is almost always where the instabilities in the hive come in. So now you've got a hive that's just Esme, Phoebe, and Mindy. Everything burns. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, now I'll watch it. All right. So I'm going to go through a couple more questions. Um, let's see. So who old is Emma? Um, what do you think Emma considers her biggest win? Her biggest specific victory getting scott to fall in love with her same (laughs) that's where my head went to (laughs) she coveted him she coveted him from afar for a long time and she wanted him desperately because she wanted to be good enough to be loved by someone like scott 
she was so hungry for it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with something that's a byproduct of that, which is wrecking Xavier and X-Men Legacy. Yeah. Yeah. Oddly, I would say that for Emma, the biggest win is teaching young Jean, is, yeah. is having oh, that yeah. moment yeah. of you you could still grow up to be the woman against who I will forever be measured and judged unworthy. And I could be that girl that everyone around us expects me to be and say, no, I will not teach you. Or I could prove once and for all that I am better than Charles Xavier in every possible way. Yes. Yeah. 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 All right. We've got a question from Adam Rack. Emma famously inhabited Iceman's body in the 90s. And... I'm going to add that if you haven't been paying attention, that's something that's about to be covered in the Iceman series, <laughs> which I'm really looking forward to reading. Um, so, but going on with the question, what's another Marvel character you'd love to see Emma's consciousness inside, either for how Emma would utilize that character's powers or how it would change the dynamic between them when they went back to their own bodies? That's happened with Aurora. It's happened with a bunch of different yeah. people. Yeah, she's, she's big on the body, huh? Yeah, but, but whom would you, whom oh, who would you face? see that as who a development going forward? Uh, okay. And I feel like it could be consensual or not in that context and there are so many different ways you could play that dynamic i'd like to see rogue Ooh, interesting because they're so different like i feel like what makes rogue appealing as a character is extremely different from mm -hmm. emma so if emma was in rogue's body how would that um mix and match and yeah they've got in, in x-men the end I feel like that's the only place where I've really seen the, the Emma Frost rogue dynamic explored in any degree of depth. I'm trying to think Because they don't else. usually interact, but I feel no. like they have very like no. different appealing bits of them, and people interact with them very differently. Well, And, and yeah. also Emma's approach to her sexuality. Emma's a character I can honestly see going, I'm going to swap bodies with you for a day. You have permission to do whatever you want that doesn't get me pregnant or damaged. Have fun! Uh, because then Rogue could actually, you know, have a honeymoon. Um, <laughs> Welcome Rogue, to my fan I, I have this. It doesn't involve an inhibitor collar. If it doesn't involve an inhibitor collar, I would actually switch her with Kitty Pryde. Um, because Ooh, Kitty, is, thinking, uh, yeah. Kitty is yeah. very frequently written in that classic, I'm not like other girls, girls way. And I say this as someone who desperately loves Kitty, mm. where... She doesn't know she's beautiful. She's effortlessly pretty. The few times we see her trying to be pretty, it's always played for laughs because she's so beautiful without the work. And I'd like to see Kitty both try to deal with being a living YouTube comment section, walking around in a telepath, and confront the sheer amount of work Emma puts in, that this is not an accident, this is not something, oh, you're just beautiful with no consequence. No, this is, this is hard. This is not a joke. I was, yeah, I was thinking about that for the same reason. Um, but since you said it, I'm going to go with, I think, Jean Grey. Mm -mm. Because we've seen Jean Grey in Emma's head. We've seen them both in Xavier's head. Um, we've seen Jean Grey in Emma's head again. And I think that Emma having access to the parts of, of Jean that she wouldn't have otherwise chosen to look at, um, the parts that are going to make her feel bad about things that she's done um, and has otherwise avoided. It, it would be a really interesting reckoning. Yeah. Mm, so. I also ship them. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, me too. So, yeah. Magneto, because he is, the, they're yeah, diametrically opposed in their, their mm -hmm. 
idea of power and in the kind of power that they have. He's all like about raw, brutal, physically imposing his will on the world and he can do it. She has been all about the performance, the weaponization, the telepathy. Like, you know, I think that it would just be interesting to see them without recourse to their usual ways of, of changing the world. I mean, that's a weird answer. Oh, weirder um, than that? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Um, because I feel like those are all yeah. logical extrapolation, logical choices. And mine goes back to a couple very specific things, but I'm going to say Colossus. Huh. For a couple reasons, the first of which, and what the first thing that got me thinking about this and the idea of, of Emma Frost and Colossus and their relative and respective roles is the reason she has her secondary mutation is that Grant Morrison needed a brawler on the team. He originally wanted Colossus. He couldn't have Colossus. So oh, I thought he just hated Colossus. Yeah, no, Colossus was, Colossus dead, was dead, at dead at the time. Oh. Colossus was dead. And um, <laughs> there was somebody that he... Oh, I, I don't he remember. He hates Gambit. He hates I remember and reading that and article. he refused to write them. Yeah. Aw. So that's <laughs> why they're not that's in. That's kind of hilarious. But, but, yeah. No, but so so Emma's most, the start of Emma's definitive tenure on the X-Men was specifically as a Colossus stand-in in terms of fight dynamics, but also at the same time, I feel like they're characters who given, who've had very little opportunity to interact directly, but who given their histories and the connections they've made would have a really interesting and really mutually compassionate rapport. And I could see, and Emma's, Emma's friendships with other X-Men extend in a lot of different directions, but one of them is specifically that she is willing to be the person who is cruel so the people around her don't have to be yeah and Remember that's when that's, she telepathically yeah. attacked a room full of press and reporters because one yeah. of them called beast a monster yeah yep. and that's and colossus is on the other hand the incredibly powerful character who everyone respects because you know because he is the enormous dude who, who turns into steel who is incredibly gentle and incredibly kind and is the x-man most likely to break up with someone without them realizing that they've been broken up with. <laughs> um, basically, he is, he is like, I, I'm not saying he's the Chris Traeger of the X-Men because I don't feel like he's that confident, but um, he's, he is the most likely to, to pull that particular terrible move. And I feel like in that switch, like him, he as Emma and compassionate in the ways that he's compassionate would be a version of Emma and a take on Emma who had permission to be gentle in the ways that Emma frequently doesn't allow herself herself to be. And the Emma as Colossus, Colossus would be the one who, you know, the, the, I don't want to break up with my girlfriend. Would you possess me for a day and take care of this <laughs> situation? Um, because it would, would be the one who, who steps in and sets, sets the boundaries or helps him figure out ways to set the boundaries or just establish the space that he's not able to for himself. Like they're, they're characters. Or send a dick pic that he's too shy to send. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, I feel like shadow cat would be on top of that. I mean, Oh God, I'm sorry. That was <laughs> what I meant. Hey, uh, I'm sorry. Burning that M reading. <laughs> no, we're past that. No, uh, but I, I feel like, I feel like the most, I feel like like shadow cat would be very high on the list of accidentally like spam texting dick pics. Yeah, I agree. I mean, she thinks she understands computers too well, so it would basically be like when every IT professional I knew was getting used to their new smartphone. They thought they knew everything, and so suddenly, junk everywhere. Well, no, she is she's she's the the high level programmer hacker, she the person good. who is an expert in such a specialized field that the basic stuff slips through the cracks. Yeah, yes, like that's that's that's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, like so, she would be sending nudes, or she would be forwarding 
She would be. She would either be forwarding Colossus's, or she would have taken jokey pictures of him at some point and accidentally mass emailed them. <laughs> I, I think these are all compatible in in six one six. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. Several bad puns later. While you're listening to this relatively seamlessly, for us there was about a half hour gap between where we left off during which Seanan and Diana left. There are four of us here now, we just had a really long conversation about Harry Potter, and now we're back to Emma Frost to wrap up. So I'm gonna Who take- would be a Slytherin, yes. obviously. Yeah, I mean, like, she's so Slytherin they'd rename the house after her. Um, it's now House Frost. Yeah. So I have, I have a question um, that I feel like I, I already know our answers to this. But um, this is this is from this is from someone whose name I suspect is a Roman numeral. So I'm just gonna spell it and not try to, try to pronounce it, which is C L I X L I I. Who asks on Tumblr, if you had editorial control, which existing X person would you have come out? What previous events would you point out to support this coming out? And I feel like the appropriate answer is all of them and all of them, because there are so many different ways to be queer. Yes, I I also agree with that. The one that I'm hurting for the most um, is probably Kitty Pride to come out as yes. spy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would point to Excalibur. I would point to specifically those three panels where she's licking icing off of Courtney's. Who is actually inter- not Courtney's yes, finger. Satire 9, interdimensional supervillain. Yeah. Um, and I, there's so much subtext there, and it's not even subtext. I feel like that's text at that point. Alan Davis has said it he is, was drawing it as a, but without the word, yeah. without like canonically saying I'm by, mm-hmm. it, 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 yeah, a lot it of people will, will pretend statement. that it's just not real. So the thing about Kitty though is that I don't want Kitty to come out because I want her to have been out all along it and just have it not be mentioned in the comics. Yeah. I've mentioned this before, but I feel like the best way for Kitty to come out in X-Men canon would just be in a conversation where she or someone else is mentioning her exes and a couple women's names are in there. And a couple women are, are mentioned. Because here's the thing. We don't talk about characters having to specifically say, I'm straight. We look at their behavior within context and their coding and their writing in comics or in any other medium. And by that standard, Kitty is as queer as most of the characters we think of as straight are straight. We're just used to looking at straight as the neutral default that we don't have to prove and don't have to demonstrate and don't have to question or articulate. And that's ridiculous. I mean, we, we talk about this stuff as subtext, but it's as textual as most other characters' sexual orientations. Yes. Yeah, and so yes. that's the thing where a lot of the characters who I want to be sort of canonically acknowledged as queer, I mean, Kitty's up there, Storm is up there. She is um, canonically queer. She's she is qu- canonically queer? bi. Storm? Yeah. No. It's never been explicit, explicitly acknowledged in the comics. But she's talked about her attraction to women, but she's, she's just never not, said Not in bi. those terms and not yeah. in ways that specifically implied that it was anything other than very intense friendship that was very clearly actually a relationship, but still. there's Yeah, but if it was Claremont writing it, then it was... But again, it was Claremont clear. writing that Excalibur era, and there's only so much... there. There's only so much you can lean on authorial intent when the author doesn't own the characters and also when you know when when people point to lack of canon as as you know that and i feel like we can't we can't in one breath lambast well actually we really can for a lot of reasons but i was gonna say lambast jk rowling for her you know oh this character's aunt's puppy's best friend was gay (laughs) 
nonsense. <laughs> she sucks. Man. But having, but but I I I think you know I think authorial intent matters when you're discussing it and when you're making the case, especially if that authorial yeah. intent is specifically thwarted by shit like the Comics Code Authority or by editorial mandate. But I think whether or not it had been intended, the text exists. Yeah, right. And so, yeah, so that's sort of what I'm talking about is that I want it to be acknowledged by whoever gets to decide that it gets acknowledged and becomes part of the canon that those things are actually queer experiences um, and not just, you know, one author's authorial intent. I know exactly how I would do it, which is why I can't talk about it because <laughs> I hopefully someday I have to yes. hold on to that yeah, yeah. and uh, other than Kitty I cannot be convinced that any telepath would ever be straight yeah it oh yeah doesn't make sense to yeah. me um and there's also or a any shapeshifter yeah there's also a group that I refer to as the PTSD lesbians which is Ileana Rasputin Rachel Gray and Laura Kinney and yeah. I, I want them, I want them to have their own series <laughs> and I, uh, want them is all to Is it called out. PTSD Lesbians? If they yeah. would let me. Yeah. Laura was another one who was going to be high on my list there. Yeah. Of, she, yeah. uh, Jordan D. White picked her to be someone to come out, um, as his choice. Interesting. Oh, good. Yeah. And yeah. cool. Yeah. That's, yeah. man, I, my answer is basically, and my, my answer is always going to be anyone for whom you can have a good story and have that representation there. Like, I don't think there can be too many queer X-Men. And right. I don't think, I think the idea that you can point to someone's history and say, no, they were, they're obviously straight because they've done these straight things in the past is just exceptional goddamn bullshit. I mean, I think I've, I, I don't remember, I've mentioned this on Twitter. I've mentioned it publicly. I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast that like when I was first coming out, I had people, someone, some fucking Anon on Tumblr went through my old writing and pointed out, you know, you wrote it about identifying as a woman in this thing, so you clearly can't really be trans. And it's like, yeah, fuck you, first of all. And second, like, the, the ways that we police the identities of fictional characters reflect and refract back on the ways we police the identities of real people. And I think establishing within fictional canons and saying, yeah, you don't get to draw those lines is an incredibly important step in, you know, is, is, is basic social responsibility as curators of a large fictional universe. I also think it's especially irresponsible to try and do something like that in a medium like comics. We have characters that have been around for 80 years mm -hmm. and the way that storylines, it, it moves like a dream, one image through into the next one, into the next one, and it doesn't always make sense. And there's a very surrealist aspect to it. Yeah. And to try and impose any kind of rigidity, whether it's with sexual orientation or gender identity, to impose that onto something that by nature completely defies uh, normal narrative conventions. And that was conceived really at a time when a lot me. of the terms and a lot of the ideas by which we conceptualize ourselves and our identities now just didn't exist or weren't in pop popular lexicon. And then when they did start to become popular lexicon, we're still censured by the comics authority. Yeah. And mm -hmm. we're not allowed to be shown in the way that creators would have loved to do. Yeah, it blows my mind the extent to which representations of queer and trans identities are still seen as 
alternative even the idea that these are these are alternative things and not just part of an existing spectrum and not just there the fact that it's seen as a controversial thing to show this stuff you can have you know wings and you can have a community that's largely mutants but, but if some forbid, of those mutants are clear oh my god yeah it doesn't that doesn't make any sense to me um i i know exactly who i i would write as coming out as trans and and who i would pick for you know different aspects of queer identity um and to me, it makes sense. It's it's seamless with the characters as they've existed for so many decades. Yeah, I yeah. think, Leah, you said something on the FlameCon um, live show about specifically about people who are living outside of all of these margins and mm-hmm. how it would completely change your perspective on sexuality in a way where, you know, because you're because you because you are sort of forced to not conform to these things, you're going to question your conformity to other things too. Exactly. Yeah. To what extent are mutant bodies fundamentally queered socially? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah. when you're as old as Wolverine is and you outlive, you know, the normal conventions for relationships and monogamy and that kind of thing, like eventually anything that you viewed as taboo once you outlive the potential consequences for transgressions you realize oh it's because they're not real like it's because these never mattered and and now i'm like 200 years old and obviously i see that right yeah like those things being priorities would just sort of fall away because there's so much more going on. Yeah, because they're priorities that adhere to like a normal human lifespan that is shorter than Wolverines would be. I think any kind of, I think telepaths, I cannot be convinced they're straight. And I think any kind of immortal-ish being, um, it, it is almost impossible for them to be straight as well. Yeah, like what, I, I think, what is the point at which having a different sort of a completely different sort of identity from one that we can comprehend kind of fundamentally makes you queer. And on that note, I think we are going to wrap up for now. Um, Sean and, and Diana have left, but thank you in absentia to them. T, Leah, Cal, for the, the, from what, when you came in, thank you so much for joining us and for doing this and for staying up late on a convention night when everyone has to be, well, I don't actually have to be, but everyone else has to be at the convention center and, and functional and early in the morning and deal with crowds and you've been doing this all day and coming over and doing this. It has been such a pleasure. Thanks for um, having me. Yeah. It's fun. I'm sure Sean would have said the same. And I am so looking forward to the two of you just um, basically riding in swords in hand, taking over the entire X line and, um, we're, we're excited to be there. We have grand plans. I'm so excited. <laughs> well, you definitely have my axe, which is a theoretical axe. Oh, no, T has multiple tridents, though, because she cost I have I have a trident nice. and an accordion. You have my accordion. Nice. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded this week just in Forest Hills, New York, and 